What's going on, everybody? It's that time again. It's time for the With a Bullet podcast. My name is Todd Golden. I'm here with my brother, Matt Golden. Matt, how are you doing? Uh, pretty good. Pretty good. We're recording on a Monday this time. Normally we record on Sunday night, but uh, um, I had to work. And uh, so this week's chart is from April 18th, 1970. And Matt, you picked it. Why was this your pick for this week? Um, Let's see. Well, when I was listening, I mean, they replayed the top 40 countdowns on the radio here and whenever they do ones from the early 70s it's kind of like all over the place and it's usually pretty interesting it's when it's before everything started to get split up and everything but um this countdown did have like a lot of great songs on it too so that was part of the reason so 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 you cheat on us and you listen to countdowns and other um mediums Yes, I do on on the radio. So dare you? How <laughs> dare you? So, I agree. This is a really good countdown, and uh, well, let's get started with it. Um, and you'll get started this week, uh, Matt, with number forty, "Love on a Two Way Street" by The Moments. Yeah, and this is my first skip. It's um, it end it ended ended up being pretty big hit, but kind of basic soul ballad um not really too much to say about it so fine be that way that's a pretty cool song though but okay all right um but let's go to 39 for you which is um, rufus thomas with do the funky chicken do the fucking chicken now do the fucking chicken um (laughs) rufus thomas i love rufus thomas he is awesome if you're into stacks music like i am um rufus thomas is by no means the best artist in Stax history, not the best singer, didn't play an instrument that I'm aware of, um, but he embodies kind of Memphis soul and and uh, everything that's cool about Stax, uh, the record label, and the sound that uh, was coming out of Memphis at that time. And so this is an all-time Stax song. It's an all-time novelty song. Obviously, the, the Funky Chicken was a dance that Rufus Thomas just kind of created on the fly. He basically improvised the lyrics to the song, and Rufus was a longtime Memphis kind of hanger on in the scene, I guess. He actually recorded for Sun Records back in the 50s. And uh, there's some evidence that Elvis stole some of his act from him. In fact, Rufus was kind of upset about that through part of the 50s. But um, he kind of hung around and then um, he recorded for uh, Stax, which had just established itself in in the South Memphis neighborhood he lived in. Um, and he recorded a duet with his daughter, Carla, who's also famous. She recorded with Otis Redding many times, Tramp being a big one. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then he had a hit with Walking the Dog, which has uh, been covered by a lot of artists. It's uh, also a little bit of a novelty song, but uh, very much rooted in the Southern soul and uh, R&B tradition. And he just kind of, you know, he was around the scene. He recorded some stuff in the 60s for, for Stax, but he was never one of their primary artists. And then he puts out this song in, in the early part of 1970, and it and it hit. And part of the reason I think it hit, apart from the fact it's really, really funky, and it is at the cutting edge of what soul was at the time. There's some clavinet in this and all that, that, that kind of 70s funk sound that was coming into style at this point. 
And, but I also think a big thing is that Rufus was such a big personality and, and such a well-liked personality is that even though Stax probably didn't, you know, probably didn't put much stock in this when they recorded it, he had the Barkays as his back backing band and the Barkays were a fantastic backing band. Of course, they're basically Isaac Hayes's backing band and then became big in their own right in the later on in the seventies. But, um, so they, they put out, they, I mean, the funk on this, the stacks sold R and B on this is top notch. So it may be a novelty song, but it's also backed up with, you know, outstanding musicianship and all that. But Rufus Thomas was a huge character. He was also a radio personality in Memphis right up to the day he died in 2001. And he was kind of Mr. Memphis soul and, um, just had a great personality. Um, and he had a, he was, he was very flamboyant, uh, one of the most iconic moments of Watt Stacks, which was a, a ben, you know, a sort of a benefit concert that Stax Records sponsored in L.A., was Rufus doing this song, and he encouraged the crowd to run on the field at the L.A. Coliseum, and they, and they did, and they jammed, uh, but it got out of hand, and Rufus had to, uh, and, and, and resplendent in his pink shirt and pink shorts <laughs> and, and boots had to implore them to get back in their seats in his own kind of an inimitable way. Um, Rufus Thomas had some cool songs. He really dined off of this one. I mean, he had at least three or four songs that were called Do The, whether it was Do The Penguin, uh, yep. uh, uh, Do The Push and Pull. Uh, there's a couple others. Uh, he had some awesome music. It, it, there's just a lot of joy in his music. I really like him. I'll Be Your Santa, which was on the Stax Christmas album, came out in the, <laughs> later in the 70s. That is actually my favorite Christmas song by a rock, you know, by a rock and soul artist. I mean, that is just great stuff. So I love Rufus Thomas. I'm glad he's in this countdown. And uh, do the funky chicken, Matt. Okay, do I, the I funky will. And, and there is one thing. This song has been sampled quite a bit, too. Uh, there is a version of it, and I couldn't find it, although I've heard it on the on the radio. Um you know, where he, where he says he's talking to the crowd, he goes, now here's something I want y'all to do for me. Public Enemy used that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eastie Boys used it, m- among others. So he's also, a lot of Stax music generally has been sampled, but uh, uh, Rufus Thomas rules, and I'm um, glad I got to kind of pay tribute to him. So mm-hmm. that brings us to number 38, Cecilia by Simon and Garfunkel. Let's see, and this is this ended up being a big hit, um, made it up to number four, and this is actually the biggest rise that I've ever seen for a track that I've done here. It was up 30 spots this yep. week. Second week um, on the chart, according to the little thing I'm looking at right now. Yep, but um, this was a big album for Simon and Garfunkel, and it was also their last proper album. Um actually have another song from this album later on in the chart, but um, the song's Latin-inspired. Um, the beat from it, from the beginning of it, kind of happened when Simon Garfunkel and Garfunkel's brother were goofing off at a party, and they were just kind of banging on a piano bench, and um, Simon just happened to have a tape recorder with him and recorded um, them goofing off and playing this beat and it became the beat for the song and um, um, the song is I mean the song still gets played on the radio a lot um, they're almost singing in what can best be described as a fake Puerto Rican accent 
I guess. Cultural appropriation. Exactly. But um, kind of an enduring hit for them. Um, Let's see. The line, supposedly the line making love in the afternoon was considered somewhat risque at the time. Um, It is basically about a guy sleeping with his girlfriend and he like gets up to go to the bathroom and she's with another guy and that's pretty much it but um pretty decent song um i like this era of simon and garfunkel so i like this era of simon and garfunkel too i I, this song though i've always felt like like it's kind of a window on what paul simon's solo career would become late later when he uh you know in a way to his credit he was always willing to kind of record in different sounds but it always felt like a museum experiment to me i don't know that's yeah I, his world music kind of experiments just never moved me that much but um but that's just me so yeah yeah i mean you're kind of right about that but, so um let's see let's move on here to 37 though um ray stevens with everything is beautiful this chart is so good i don't have time for any schlock to flag on it so i'm skipping this one but uh this, okay. was a big, this was a big one and this one went up 15 spots this week so huh. that leads us to number 36 all i have to do is dream by bobby gentry and glenn campbell let's see and this is actually kind of a landmark for us because um this was actually on an album or it was added as a bonus track to an album that I skipped on our 1969 show. Okay. (laughs) So what you're saying is, is that this is a song from something that we've skipped before. Is that the right, right, right. Exactly. Wow. We better call the national archives about that one. (laughs) But it's, it's a pretty straightforward, um, Everly brothers cover. Um, kind of a little bit more easy listening sounding, which is to be expected from Glenn Campbell, I guess. But um, it, Bobby's um, credited first, but she's like barely in the mix. You can pretty much only hear Glenn on it. But um, decent song, I guess. I mean, decent cover. Um, ended up peaking at six on the country charts 27 here so what um, i have a question was this bobby gentry's last chart appearance i am not sure about that it, it is possible she did kind of disappear afterwards she really disappeared didn't she i mean she never really um you know she was kind of a brief icon there in the late 60s but um then kind of disappeared off the face of the earth to some degree yeah, I, I'm not sure if it was actually. Um, let me let me see if I can find that here. But I I know at the time she had made enough money off of um, the Ode to Billy Joe that she was actually part owner of the Phoenix Suns when they first started. I did not know that. See, if I wouldn't have asked that question, we would have never known. But Ode <laughs> to Billy Joe is a great song. I mean, that is that's one of the best story songs there is. Plus it's it, it is, yeah. It's yep. a mark. I like but, it. Um, well, why don't you look that up while I talk about okay. 35? Actually, actually, she did have a few hits after that, it looks like. Okay. But not too many afterwards. But anyway, um, let's go into 35, which is George Baker's selection with Little Green Bag. Well, 
we all know those of us who've been around since the nineties and, you know, ingrained in that's pop culture know that this is most memorably used in the opening credits of uh reservoir dogs. So we know that that's where this song for our generation anyway, is famous. Um, and, but you know, the George Baker selection themselves, it sounds like a one hit wonder. They actually weren't, but, um, but they were obscure. They were Dutch and they kind of came together uh, just before this was recorded. And, and this happened to be, they were, they were surprised that this became a hit. And so they hung around for a while. And then they had another hit in the mid seventies uh, called Paloma Blanca, which is Spanish for white bird. And it hit number 26 here, but what it's probably most famous for being is more recent and that's that it's a really famous internet meme when uh, French singer Georgie Dan covered it and remade it for a New Year's Eve special. I couldn't find out where, whether it was in Spain or in France. And it has one of the most cheesy kind of mid-70s variety show things on acid you've ever seen. I, I've seen it in a lot of memes. Um, basically, it's a lot of, you know, mid-70s green screen, terrible effects with with a white dove in the background and all kinds of terrible singing including guys trying to mime a bird and <clears throat> he's in like a gold lame outfit but then at the end of the video it gets almost disturbing because they're literally holding white doves to free them like upside down like real ones okay and you got a you got a woman like a mid-70s looking kind of hottie you know playing a flute have you ever seen it no, no, I haven't oh, seen God. that. Look it up. Georgie Dan, uh, Una Paloma Blanca. You've, you probably have seen it. The video has okay. 6.8 million views on YouTube. I mean, I think it might be a soccer meme. I, I, I don't even know where the meme itself comes from other than it's super cheesy. But anyway, George Baker Selection did the original version of that song that uh, hit 26 in the mid-70s. They broke up in 78 because the pressure became too much. I have no idea what pressure... <laughs> they were under other than probably to maintain their record deal but uh but they kind of have <laughs> george baker selection for having two hits has kind of had some memorable uh inclusions into the pop culture zeitgeist i guess so uh, uh -huh. but obviously this and this song is cool it's very emblematic of a early 70s uh pop song that kind of comes out of nowhere so um and quentin tarantino who has good taste and what he chooses for his movies did a good job picking this one for uh, the beginning of Reservoir Dogs. So, yeah, that leads us to your next one. Number 34, Everybody's Out of Town by B.J. Thomas. Let's see. And this is Skip. This was his first single after Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. And it sounds an awful lot like that song. So, yeah, I don't I don't I don't remember this song. This one I'm not familiar with. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, it's almost exactly the same. So I'm just skipping it. But um, let's move on to 33, which is Rare Earth with Get Ready. This is a reluctant skip on my part, only because I had Rare Earth once before and when we did 1971. Um, the only thing I will say about it, I never knew this until I listened to it on Spotify, the album version of this has like a two minute jazzy intro to it. I'd never heard that before. Huh. Uh, it's actually kind of cool, you know, and you can, you can hear it when you hear it on the radio, you can hear the cut in for it now that I've actually heard it. Um, so go check that out if you want, but I'm skipping this. I've already kind of gone over rare earth and, and all of that. So 
I, I say that I like this version more than the Temptations version. Um, it's it's all right. I don't know if I go that far, but it's it's fine. Rare Earth did some decent songs, you know. So, um, <laughs> next for you is number thirty-two, "Vehicle" by the Ides of March. Let's see, and this sounds almost identical to "Blood, Sweat, and Tears." Um, they were they were a Chicago-based band. Um, they had a couple regional hits before this. Um, but this was their first Hot 100 hit and their only Top 40 hit. And the song was written and sung by Jim Petterick, um, who later went on to found Survivor. And he wrote all of their hits. He was their primary songwriter. And he also wrote Hold On Loosely and Rockin' Into the Night for 38 Special. So kind of, kind of had a long career after this. But um, the song itself was inspired by a girlfriend of his who um, basically just used him for his car, or he thought that he was, that she was using him for the car. Just like, hey, what, why don't you give me a ride to this place? And also kind of got spun into that was um, um, anti-drug pamphlets from the time. Um, kind of... Um, there's a line, I got goodies, um, why don't you hop into my car, and stuff like that. But um, pops up in ads a lot, usually for car companies. I mean, obviously, cars, vehicles. <laughs> and um, it ended up making it all the way up to number two. And since Patrick, since Patrick also wrote I Am the Tiger, I will mention that the guitar solo in this is very similar to the guitar solo in Gotta Fly Now, which was the theme to Rocky One. So I, okay. I don't know if there's if that was intentional or what. I've never I've never noticed that. But you know what I do like about songs like Vehicle with the heavy brass and all that that that's in it? I like that <laughs> very brief period is like the late sixties, early seventies. Chicago, of course, was big in this, and so was Blood, Sweat and Tears, where they almost tried to match the horns as like a harder instrument, like right there with the guitars. Like they were trying to match. It's like they were trying to have a battle between each other, the horns and the guitars. And oh yeah. Brass yeah. almost got used as sort of a harder instrument in that period. I like a lot of those songs. It didn't last very long. Um, you know, Chicago kind of muted their horns out, you know, as they went along, but, um, but this song is definitely a, an example of that. And, Plus, it's over the top, too. I'm your vehicle, baby! Although, yeah, if this, yeah. If this were a Blood, Sweat, and Tears song, it would be my favorite Blood, Sweat, and Tears song. I'll, I'll say that. Oh, definitely, definitely. Yep. Let's see, but let's move on to 31 here, which is Brooke Benton with Rainy Night in Georgia and Rubbernecking. Yeah, I'll get to the rubbernecking part of this in a second. I think that might be an error by um, Billboard. But anyway... Uh, Rainy Night in Georgia, most people know this song and this version of the song specifically, but it is one of the great R&B songs, very kind of melancholy and um, pretty unique. It's it's very evocative of um, a rainy night, obviously, and, and, you know, Brooke Benton really nailed it. He didn't write it. Um, it was written by my man, Tony Joe White, who I like a lot, um, who is a kind of a swamp soul artist who hit it big in this period with Polk Salad Annie. That was his big hit. Um, 
and you know it was just kind of a southern almost i wouldn't say it was southern rock but he was a, a precursor to the you know to to that sound in some ways uh certainly would be considered swamp rock as well but he wrote this and um you know and he recorded it before brooke benton did and as but as much as i like tony joe white brooke benton stole this song from him there's no doubt about it and it was brooke benton's comeback he was a hit maker in the at the turn of the 60s uh turn of the 50s to the 60s and had gone through a pretty lengthy dry spell and uh recorded this and and it resonated with people so um it's on its way down the chart at this point it had peaked at number four uh but just a great song and every time i hear it on the radio it's uh pretty much a never gonna get changed it's just such a beautiful song oh yeah yeah um you know and brooke benton has that cool deep voice that gives it a lot of soul and all of that so but you mentioned the rubberneck in which i assume was either it was a double eight it was Maybe it was a double A side or maybe that was the B side. If it was, I could find absolutely no reference to not only the fact that this was a an A sided single, but that he ever recorded rubbernecking at all. I mean, I this oh, is really? the first song I've ever come up upon where I could not find it on Spotify or YouTube, which usually usually YouTube will have a lot of out of print type of albums that people have put up. And I yeah. found zero reference to this. When I looked on a search for this, uh, just Googled it, I couldn't find it at all. So I didn't go into discogs.com or anything like that. Maybe he did record it, but um, Billboard does make errors sometimes on these charts, I've noticed, uh, very rarely. Hmm. But um, but I couldn't find it. This was not the B-side to it, so at least the, hmm. at least the single I found. So... Anyway, that's not what this song would be remembered for anyway. It's, uh, you know, a soul classic and um, cool that it pops up on this chart. So next for you is another classic soul group. Um, You need love like I do, don't you? In parentheses. Gladys Knight and the Pips. See, and I I wasn't familiar with this song um, before we did this, but I pulled it up and my first impression was, wow, this sounds a lot like The Temptations. And there's a very good reason for that, because um, it was actually recorded at the same time as The Temptations version. Um, Gladys Knight and the Pips were still on Motown at the time, and um, both groups worked with um, Norman Whitfield and Barrett Strong. So um, they, um, this has, I mean... Sounds very similar to like Cloud Nine or like um, Can't Get Next to You, that kind of era of Temptations. The good era of the Temptations. Yes, yes. And based on the Gladys Knight version, I would have guessed that Dennis Edwards sang the the lead on the Temptations version, just based on how Gladys is singing the song. But it's actually Eddie Kendrick on the lead in the Temptations version. And... um. Because of that, I prefer the Gladys Knight version. It's a little bit rougher. Um, great song, though. So. Gladys Knight and the Pips Motown era. People forget that most of their best-known songs from the early 70s were after they left Motown. Those are Buddha Records uh, albums. But uh, yeah. they're weird. Not every group took to Motown. You know, the Isley Brothers are a famous example of a group that they did have the one big hit with uh, this old heart of mine, but they didn't have any others 
recording for Motown. And Gladys Knight and the Pips are another group that they were successful at Motown. They had some hits, but um, they got bigger when they left. And so not all groups were that way, of course, but uh, they were one who was. They've had a pretty interesting history in that regard. So Gladys Knight is just cool. She's got a great voice and um, hard to beat. So, yep. But that also leads us to your long-distance dedication this week, Matt. What you got? At 85, we have Funkadelic with I Got a Thing, You Got a Thing, Everybody's Got a Thing. Yes. Okay. And this was the second single from their first album as Funkadelic. Um, I don't really want to go too far back into their history, but the band um, was created when the soul group called the Parliaments merged with their backing group. And due to contractual issues, they couldn't use the name the Parliaments. Um, the Parliaments were signed to another record label and um, um, let's see um, <laughs> and Funkadelic was signed to a different label but anyway um, they chose the name Funkadelic because um, it was kind of what the sound that they were going for a kind of funk mixed with psychedelia and on this album they didn't quite have the sound that we think of when we think of funkadelic yet it was funky and on this song there is kind of like an overpowering funky wah-wah guitar kind of going through all of it but um they were definitely leading towards the psychedelic end of that combination at the time but at the same time they're also still rooted in the tradition of um, the 60s um, soul vocal style, almost like a harder-edged version of the Temptations uh, psychedelic soul period. And this song has all of that. Um, There's the wah-wah guitar, which I mentioned, which is like, wow, 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 wow. And then it kind of That was pretty good. Yeah. That was a good psychedelic (laughs) wah-wah guitar note there. (laughs) and it's the title of the song is kind of chanted over in the over by the group i got a thing you got a thing everybody's got a thing and then it just kind of gradually gets louder until it builds up to a crescendo and then it just goes into like a psychedelic freak out yeah they, they like that Yeah, and there's kind of a Temptation-style bridge, which was actually sung by Eddie Hazel, who is the guitarist. But what first drew me to this song is that there's a clip of the band playing this song on Upbeat, which was kind of a syndicated Midwestern version of American Bandstand um, that was actually hosted by longtime Cleveland-area weatherman Don Webster. And it very well... It very well might have aired on this date. And it starts out with Webster announcing the other guests on the show, which were Bobby Sherman and John Denver. And then he's like, next we have the Funkadelic with I Got a Thing. And then, wow, 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 wow. They got seen footage of that. They're all like dressed up in weird costumes and stuff like that. Yeah, George Clinton's dressed up like an Indian chief. Um, Fuzzy Haskins is doing... Um, what can best be, ah, best be described as like a funky chicken type of dance. 
And one of the other guys is dressed up like a wizard, but it almost looks like clan robes. Right. Yeah, and, I've seen that. And everybody just looks stoned out of their fucking minds. And um, they're lip syncing this song and they actually like lose track of like who's singing the song at once it gets to the bridge part. And I, I think they like eventually settle on the bass player who didn't actually sing it. But I, I'm assuming that everybody who tuned in for Bobby Sherman or John Denver was just thinking, what the fuck is this? Yeah, yeah that would be pretty, pretty stark departure. Right. And it's it's a really great driving song too. the the album version of this is about eight minutes long. And it, I mean, it just kind of keeps going. I mean, once it builds up to the crescendo to the freak out, it just goes past that. So it's I mean, it's 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 great. I, I mean, I it came up in the shuffle when I was in the middle of nowhere in Nebraska and just like kept me going for a few minutes. <laughs> so but anyway, I'd just like to dedicate this to Don Webster. So Webster. OK, <laughs> the thing about the whole the whole P-Funk record label thing, because I believe it was Funkadelic that was on Westbound Records. And I don't remember what Parliament was par- later on what Parliament was on. That's become a real pain in the ass if you like these groups or like this, the, P- the P-Funk universe, so to speak, because some of this stuff is available and some of it is harder to get because of all the weird record, record label uh, accounting kung fu that George Clinton was doing at the time. Right. Um, I, I, the psychedelic freakout stuff by Funkadelic, I'm not a big psychedelic freakout guy. I think you're more into that than I am. Yeah. But I, I jumped in with Maggot Brain, which came out the following year. Actually, it, Maggot Brain was released on my birthday. Really? Which is pretty. Huh. Yes, it was released. The I came out of the womb to Maggot Brain. I'm sure that was being played in the delivery room. <laughs> but, um, but obviously, fun- Funkadelic. If you wanna, if you if you don't know the difference, the the main difference is Funkadelic is harder edged and guitar driven. Parliament, which they didn't even really start recording again as Parliament until the mid '70s, is dance groove stuff. It's all great, but um, so, but yeah, so. P-Funk is the shit. There's no question about yep. it. Yep. See, but let's move on here to 29, which is Junior Walker and the All-Stars with Gotta Hold On to This Feeling. Um, it occurred to me listening to this song, I don't want to go on too much about it, but I think Junior Walker invented 70s sax. I mean, if you think of a Junior Walker song and you think of his saxophone, um, he basically was ahead of his time in creating the sax sound that a lot of 70s soft rock and rock bands used and this song it's very prominent um that kind of the you know the higher end uh soprano type sax hmm. yeah yeah i could see yeah. that if you think about it yeah. so this song though it's uh it's his uh second last top 40 hit it sounds a whole hell of a lot like color him father by the winstons which would have come out about a year before this so uh which is a good song but it's pretty clear he's trying to cop that that kind of vibe that they had going in that song so excellent turn of the 70s r&b but we got a lot of that on this countdown so i don't want to belabor it too much um so that leads us to number 28 for you matt for the love of him by bobby martin yeah and this is a skip it's kind of like halfway easy listening halfway country so yeah (laughs) 
probably the one weakness of this chart is there is some easy listening country on it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. It's about the weakness in it, though. So yeah. let's see. But let's move on to 27. The Hollies with he ain't heavy. He's my brother. <clears throat> well, you aren't heavy, I don't think. And you are my brother. So I got that out of the way. <laughs> okay. You know, song title is strange, but it comes from a, a parable that dates apparently to Scotland in the 1800s um, of a little girl carrying her big, her, her baby, her baby brother who was big. It was a big baby and she was struggling to carry him. And someone asked if she could be, if she was tired and she responded with the song title, he ain't, or he didn't, she didn't say he ain't heavy, but he isn't heavy. He's my brother. And I think it's intended to be a reference to Jesus in a certain sense. Um, you know, like carrying the, um, the burden of your sins or something like that. I don't know. That's why I don't write parables. But anyway, it was, it was pretty famous in the English tradition, not so much the American one, um, and had been used as a title of various poems and all of that throughout the 20th century. So it would have been in the vernacular to some degree, or at least maybe the church tradition of the vernacular of, of the British Isles at the time. And of course, the Hollies are from the UK. Um, this song, Elton John played piano on it right before he kind of broke himself uh, as a big artist. So, so that's one little nugget. And as far as the song itself is concerned, I, I've always found it alternately moving and schlocky all at the same time. Pretty much, yeah. You know, it has that kind of very much in vogue, uh, kind of distant harmonica to it. Uh, which was uh, in a lot of songs in that period of time. Um, but the singing in it is good. The Hollies obviously could sing. And, um, you know, it's very dramatic and rises and falls with the lyrics and all that. So it's uh, it's uh, it's definitely of its time. And it, and, it, and it was a huge hit, too. It was on its way down the charts. It got up to number seven. So um, so there you go. OK, but. Next up for you, Matt, number 26 is Call Me slash Son of a Preacher Man by Aretha Franklin. See, and this this was a double A side. Um, Call Me was uh, was written by Aretha. It's a um, pretty good soul ballad and has obvious gospel influence on the background vocals. Um, ended up being covered by Diana Ross about a year after this, but she retitled it, I Love You with call me in parentheses and Ross's version ended up being nominated for a Grammy. Um, but Aretha's version is, is better. And son of a preacher man, obviously cover of the dusty Springfield song. Um, Aretha's version is a lot funkier. Um, closer, to the, and closer to the and, genuine art and true to, true to life too. She really was a, well, she wasn't a son of a preacher man, but she was a daughter of a preacher. That, man. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. But her versions definitely, I mean, both versions are great, but her version's a lot better. Um, and um, this ended up going up to 13 and was number one R and B single, which Aretha had a lot of those. So yes. Quite a few. Aretha from, you know, about what, 66 to probably well through the mid 70s was pretty much automatic, whatever she released, especially on the R&B chart. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So much that a lot of it is not really heard as much today. I mean, if you go back and listen to all the songs, 
that chartered. There's several I've I'm not that familiar with, including this. Yeah, one. I wasn't really I, familiar I, with I this one either. And it, it's I, I've heard song. her version of Son. Yeah, I've heard her version of Son of a Preacher Man. I don't think I've heard the whole single though. So, um, you know, there's a wealth of stuff to explore with with uh, Aretha Franklin. So, yep. Let's see, but let's move on to 25. Um, Neil Diamond with Shiloh. Well, in my opinion, there's a lot of bad Neil. Um, more than good Neil, probably two thirds more bad Neil than there is the third good Neil. However, I would put this song in the good Neil category. Um, it's it was actually recorded a couple different times. Um, it was originally recorded when Neil made his first album in 1967, and he wanted it released as a single back then. It was a little more spare than the version that um, that this that this one was that became a hit. And it was not released as a signal and it as a single, and it did contribute to Neil Diamond leaving his original record label, which was Bang Records um, hmm. in the mid And so when Neil hit it big with Sweet Caroline and uh, Brother Love and stuff like that in '69, well, Bang Records still had the rights to some of these songs, so they re-released Shiloh, uh, kind of a classic, uh, uh, kind of Alan Kleinish. Uh, you know, let's capitalize on the on the stuff we have the rights to type of thing. And Neil then re-recorded it again himself and put it on one of his own albums. So anyway, the version that you've probably heard is this one, which is um, has strings in it and more of a prominent guitar in the mix, that kind of thing. Very, very trademark Neil Diamond of the late 60s, early 70s type of song and this has its own little flourish in it when he goes to the chorus and all of that but but it's a, I, I like this song as neil diamond songs go this one would be one of the ones i would uh listen to so yeah it's it's decent it didn't go that high in the chart it actually only made it another spot and then it started dropping so it's not one of his biggest hits mm. but um but one that's pretty well remembered he he liked it so he played it in concert a lot and i think when when Hot August Night came out, it, a lot of people picked up on it. So he, he usually plays it as, as, as at his concerts. So it's one of those songs that didn't get terribly high in the chart, but it's probably better remembered than it was as a hit in its time. So, um, But if you're into Neil, this is one of his better ones. Um, still very Neil, though. I mean, very over the top and, you know, um, it's not very subtle. So, um, But I like it. It's pretty cool. So... Yep. That leads us to one I have no idea. I've never heard this one. Number 24 is Tennessee Birdwalk by Jack Blanchard and Misty Morgan. Yeah, and this is a skip. It's um, a country novelty song. That's pretty much all you need to know. Oh, <laughs> that is not all I need to know because I want to know. This, this, uh, this is kind of a trend, Matt. We got Do the Funky Chicken and the Tennessee Birdwalk all on the same chart. Right. Lots of bird action. <laughs> This was the time to act like a, like a bird, and and I mentioned Una Paloma Blanca, which is a white bird in Spanish. Right. Yeah. Hopefully, we have more bird songs. <laughs> it was that. Nineteen seventy was the year of the bird. Yep. Let's see. But next for you, um, twenty three, little sister with "You're the One" part two. You know, when I looked at this chart, I was like, "What the hell is this?" And I thought it would be a skip but it's not a skip because this song is way ahead of the curve in terms of how it sounds. Little sister were, was the female um, 
background singers for Sly and the Family Stone, and one of them is Sly's actual little sister. Um, and in a way, I think Sly was kind of using them to kind of run the flag, run the flag up the flagpole on what his sound might be going forward, because this doesn't sound like the R and B, like some of the R and B we're talking about here. This sounds like mid seventies funk R and B. Um, this sounds like it's an outtake from there's a riot going on. I mean, it has the murky bass kind of bubbling up from the mix where it's kind of, you know, it, it doesn't sound right, but it's still prominent. Um, and this is a full, almost two years before there's a riot going or there's a riot going on. It came out in late 71. It had been delayed several times. It was mostly recorded in 1970, but um, this was clearly like a proto there's a riot going on song. And um it's a pretty great nugget really and uh um you know definitely was one of the avenues in which funk music went down that real kind of i guess drugged out you know sly music that he put out from there's a ride going on onwards so i'm glad i didn't skip it glad i went back and listened to it because this is a, a signpost for what's coming yep so um, totally different song, but also cool is number 22 celebrate by three dog night. Let's see. And three dog night were on fire in the early seventies. Wait, wait, you better go put them out. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> Just a huge string of hits together. And this was kind of the beginning of that string. Um, let's see. It's, um, it's rare for Three Dog Night because the lead vocals are shared by all three members. Um, usually one guy would sing the lead and the other two guys would join in on harmony. Um, this one, um, Danny Hutton sings the first verse, um, Chuck, Chuck Negron the second, and Corey Wells the third. And um, builds up, I mean, it's basically almost kind of a Cinderella type story and it builds up to the ending, which is celebrate, celebrate, dance to the music. And because of the big ending, it was used as the closing number at their concerts and um, features. Really? Yeah. That surprised me. Yeah. Go on. Go on. I'm sorry. But um, features the horn section from Chicago on it. And it was written by Alan Gordon and Gary Bonner, who wrote Happy Together for the Turtles. And the one thing that sticks out to me about this song is that it was used as a jingle for a seafood place in Cincinnati when I was living there. Which seafood place was that? I, I forget what the name of it was. It, it was just a local place. Oh, okay. But their commercials were on oh. TV all the time. So It's... It's shown up in some commercials, you know, nationally, I think, too. But I wonder if they played this on their Play Playboy After Dark appearance. I don't think they did. I think that was a little bit. I, I couldn't find a clip of it. I, I did find I couldn't find a clip from Playboy After Dark. The one clip I did find of them playing it live was probably about five years after this, kind of almost before they broke up originally. Yeah, but, I see it surprises me. I, I mean, in a way, it doesn't surprise me that they played this last at their concerts. Did that practice continue after Joy to the World came out? Because, good Lord, that is a concert-ending song if I've ever heard it one. It did. It, basically, until the end of their original run, this was their closing song. 
Huh, that's interesting. I mean, I, I see this as a closing song too, but you know, Joy to the World is such an iconic, just kind of, you, I mean, you could literally sing the end of that song for, you know, forever, really. I mean, and, you know, I could totally say, hey, good night, you know, Joy, you know, anyway. Right. Maybe, maybe it was used as an encore, possibly. Maybe. Yeah. But so. um, the, one, the one fact I have to throw out there about Three Dog Night is that Chuck Nagron is actually the cousin of Taylor Nagron, the 80s comedy character actor, which yes, I was kind of surprised at. So, <laughs> The mailman from Better Off Dead, among many, many other things. Yes, the, the boyfriend from Easy Money, too. So... <laughs> Out about easy money yeah. yeah so yeah you should go check them out on playboy after dark you should really just check out playboy after dark clips anyway because they're funny as hell right they don't they don't make them like that anymore i wish they did it'd be funny if they did <laughs> yeah but... see but let's move on to 21 which is santana with evil ways well matt and i we've mentioned this before this would be a uh dad mixtape special which it's more than that. Of course, this still gets played on the radio quite a bit. It's a classic rock song and Santana's first top 40 hit um, <laughs> for Matt and I. Probably we heard this song a lot when we were going on trips with our dad and I called him up or I, I didn't call him. I messaged him to ask if there's any backstory to this song, because our mother's name was Joan. And of course, uh, you know, in the in the in the lyrics, uh, there's a point where they sang, uh, you know, Tina, Joan, and uh, who knows who. So I wondered if there was a backstory to that. And uh, he said there was no backstory other than the fact that they started dating around this time. And he really liked this song because it mentioned her name in it. So I thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> but um, so there's the story. But uh, like I said, it was Santana's first top 40 hit and top 10 hit. And uh, Greg Raleigh sings it. Santana didn't sing his own songs or Carlos Santana didn't sing his own songs of course and uh, Raleigh also plays the organ on this and uh, you know of all the iterations of Santana over the years and he's had a you know several good ones um, I still prefer the original one that you know is best known you know this and Black Magic Woman uh, you know the, the group that played at Woodstock basically so um very cool song. Santana was uh, going to be remain big in the charts for the next year or two. And then he kind of went in a jazz direction and all of that. So then kind of had bubbles up once in a while on the charts. It came back in the late seventies and the early eighties and then in 2000 out of nowhere. So smooth. yeah. Yeah. But, uh, which smooth is, does it compare to this song? No, but it's not like horrible. I mean, it's, there's worse, but, um, anyway, as I hear Matt die of some sort of disgust. No, there in no, Wisconsin. no, no. <laughs> it has good guitar in it. I'll say that for it. But um, anyway, so this was the first one. And uh, Santana, of course, had performed at Woodstock, which kind of vaulted them in the national prominence. And and uh, there you go. So and a personal song for uh, our family. So yep. they're also. But that also leads me, I believe, to my long distance dedication that, that's right yep and i'm going to go to number 66 which is dear prudence by the five stair steps which um is a beatles cover and i want to dedicate this week to all the groups especially soul groups that did beatles covers and this was really the golden era of the beatles cover generally i mean there are 
on this chart, not including soul groups, there's at least three other Beatles songs covers on this chart. And there's actually the Beatles later on this chart too. But um, for whatever reason, and you don't see this anymore, really in any of our period of music, bands love playing tribute to contemporary songs in this period. You had a lot of covers back then, you know, Rolling Stones got covered a lot and, um, and uh, various, uh, you know, soul groups covered each other like respect by Aretha Franklin was of course an Otis Redding song that had only been out for about a year itself before that. So um, artists like covering each other back then, and it wasn't considered ripping off or anything like that. Most of the time it was considered what it was, which was a tribute. But for whatever reason in this period, like in the last year of the Beatles through, you know, through 1970, really there was a lot of soul groups that covered the Beatles Um on this chart, Ike and Tina Turner's Come Together is on it, down below the top 40. Um, also, Ticket to Ride by the Carpenters, not a soul group, but <laughs> they covered um, And in the year before or after this chart, you would have had uh, We Can Work It Out by Stevie Wonder came out in 71, and that's a great cover. That's one of my favorite Beatles covers. That's a great song. Booker T and the MGs made the Macklemore Avenue album, uh, album which was uh, basically a cover of Abbey Road. Yep. Uh, Macklemore Avenue is where Stax Records was in Memphis, so that was their little joke on that. And they and then, did the Abbey Road walk across Macklemore Avenue. They did the, the yeah, and I've been there. I've, I've been there to Stack Records, so it's pretty cool that they they did that in a neighborhood that couldn't be probably further away from the West End of London if you try. <laughs> right. Um, and then my favorite, my favorite cover of all time is a Beatles cover by a soul artist, and that would be Wilson Pickett's "Hey Jude." which came out in the middle of 69, I think, um, which Dwayne Allman famously played guitar on. Um, so this really was the, the, the golden age of Beatles covers, and the five stair steps themselves were from Chicago and had that Chicago soul sound that was very prominent at the time. Um, it works for them because they were a, uh, a five-family vocal group, um, like I said, out of Chicago. And Dear Prudence works because you know you can use all those voices to create kind of the vibe of that song that the beatles used with multi-tracking they just used with singing so um it's a very cool cover and this and they hit it they got the vibe of the song musically too which is hard for soul groups to do sometimes so uh five stair steps were cool they they uh um their big hit was uh Ooh child which came out um around this period as well a very iconic soul song that made it to the top 10 and this cover of dear prudence is from that same album uh which is called stair steps and they did another beatles cover on it too they did uh, getting better mm. uh which is good as this one but it's it's interesting um so they were definitely in the groove of the beatles and they were recording some of what would have been considered i guess obscure songs at that time maybe not that obscure mm-hmm. but so all recorded, all these Beatles covers recorded in the vein of like Chicago soul, um, very cool stuff. And they were the Burke family. They were called the first family of soul, the five stair steps were. And so I pay tribute to them and all the soul groups who uh, covered the Beatles because they did a lot of good work on that stuff. Yep. And um, the woman who is the inspiration for this song actually lived in my city at one point. Uh, oh, yeah. Prudence Fair. Prudence Farrow, who is the sister of Mia Farrow, uh, was actually a professor at um, the University of Wisconsin. So, 
Wow. Yep. I I don't know that I've heard. I mean, dear dear Prudence has been covered quite a bit, um, but this is a pretty unique one. It's pretty funky too, actually. I mean, actually, you could if you listen to it, you could hear some of that early funkadelic in it too. It's not quite. It's not psychedelic, but um, that real spare uh, soul kind of funk that was prominent at the time. So mm-hmm. very cool, and it's uh, almost all those Beatles covers. I think Hey Jude, and most people think I'm crazy. I think Wilson Pickett's version of Hey Jude is better than the Beatles version of Hey Jude. It, it's pretty close. It, I mean, they're both great. It's yeah, like I, I was about to say, it's not like the Beatles version is bad. It's awesome, but that Wilson Pickett, the combination of his vocals, the guitar that Almond plays in it, the bass in that song is awesome. Um, which of course it's you know with a lot of help from what Paul McCartney originally did in the in the Beatles version, but it's just such a rousing, you know, then that one, it sounds like Stax. It was actually recorded in Muscle Shoals, which was very similar to the Sax Stax sound, but um, I love that. That's my favorite cover of any song ever. So, hmm. but so very cool. So yep. Matt, next up for number you is number 20 long lonesome highway by Michael Parks. And this is a song from a TV show. Um, Occasionally we get songs from TV shows on the charts. And um, this was the closing theme of the TV series Then Came Bronson, um, which actually starred Michael Parks. Um, And Then Came Bronson was about a reporter who um, becomes disillusioned with his day job. So he quits, um, buys a motorcycle, and goes on adventures. (laughs) <laughs> and nice. and every week he does like a different odd job or helps somebody out of a jam it's pretty similar to Route 66 or the Canadian um, kids TV show The Littlest Hobo <laughs> but um, he put out four albums during the run of this show which was only one season and um, it was the song was written by um, James Hendrix, who was the ex-husband of Mama Cass, and it's kind of acoustic country folk. It's decent song, actually. Um, but after the run of the show, Parks kind of had a reputation for being difficult on the set, so he didn't really work that much for a couple decades after this, but... He was rediscovered in the 90s by a couple of fans of Then Came Bronson, um, Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez. And they cast him in minor roles in From Dusk Till Dawn, um, both of the Kill Bill movies, um, both segments of Grindhouse and Django Unchained. And he also appeared in a couple of Kevin Smith movies, too. But um, I liked it but I'm kind of surprised that it did make the charts because um, the series wasn't actually that big of a hit. So then came Bronson. I love those anthology shows from that period of time lasted into the seventies. I love the titles like where they try to get like tough last names. I'm like, who did the marketing at the TV, you know, at the TV production houses that, you know, decided to let like, uh, you know, what was a tough last name that we could go with? Like, uh, um, Banachek or <laughs> uh, Banyan. It seemed like Ban was a big part of it. You know, like if you had to, you usually had to have an N at the end of it because it allowed you to Canon. 
it allowed you to kind of say it like with emphasis. And of course, that was a period of time when TV shows actually had announcers and stuff like that, especially the Quinn Martin shows. Yeah. So canon, a Quinn Martin production. I love that. Let's see. It, it had a pretty cool opening, too. It's basically... Of course. Um, it started out where it has Bronson strolling up in his motorcycle, and he's in traffic. And he's next to, like, a businessman who's in a station wagon. He's, like, going on a trip? Yeah. Where are you going? Uh, anywhere I feel like it. Wow. I wish I was you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, when you started talking about this, it occurred to me, and especially knowing quentin tarantino's love of michael parks maybe once upon a time in hollywood is based on michael parks it it is possible yeah i mean he did kind of have like a rick dalton style career so it it is possible that he was one of the inspirations don't think michael parks had anything to do with the manson murders but (laughs) right yeah it's possible but so let's see but let's It was also when you were talking, it occurred to me that like Route 66 and and this show, I know exactly the type of show you're talking about. In some ways, The Fugitive was like that. And so was The Invaders, which was like uh, the dude from The Invaders getting an adventure is only dealt with aliens. (laughs) Okay. Have you ever seen The Invaders? That show rules. No, 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 I haven't. Oh, man, you need to see it. Shows both schlocky and cool all at the same time okay um but let's move on to 19 here which is chairman of the board with um give me just a little more time yeah and um so motown at this stage of the game was pretty much at its zenith i mean barry gordy in a lot of ways was the biggest record executive in america at that point but they had some fishers in their bedrock too and one of them was the fact that barry gordy was very controlling and, you know, eventually the, the, the creative engine behind Motown started to kind of fall apart a little bit. And this is one of the first examples where uh, Brian Holland, Lamont Dozier, and Edward Holland Jr., the famous Holland Dozier Holland uh, production trio that really crafted Motown's machine in the mid-60s, they left Motown and they started their own label, Invictus. And the chairman of the board were the first group that they kind of uh, came up with, in fact, going on the theme of my long distance dedication they covered come together on the album that this song is on. Um, But this song was the first breakthrough for the Invictus label. And there was a pending lawsuit between Motown and, and Holland Dozier Holland at the time. So they wrote this song, but they had to use a pseudonym. uh, uh, Eddie, the Wayne was what it was called as the writing credit, the funk brothers of Motown fame play on it too. And it is, this song is kind of a miracle in my in my opinion because it is extremely evocative of the Holland Dozier Holland hits from the mid '60s, like the um, you know the Supremes and the and particularly the David Ruffin incarnation of the Temptations, where um, you know the music is almost exactly the same, but it does feel updated though to the soul of 1970, and um, I love it. This is one of my favorite soul songs. Uh, of all time um, it's one of the many examples on this chart of why R&B mu- music from you know this period was just so great I mean it was um, you know there's nothing complicated about it or anything but um, it's just a, a great 
it's just a great song. And uh, chairman of the board really didn't do much after this, but um, you know, but this is a great one. So pretty good stuff. See, yeah. And he's um, kind of stuck around in the Carolina beach, beach music scene. Yeah. He actually lives in like the same area where our dad lives. Right. Kind of, like on the shore and he's and, and, kind of a regular on that scene. And the chairman of the board also went over to England and they kind of mold, you know, the Northern soul movement in England is very much rooted in that period of Motown as well. And so I think they were able to get some mileage out of that over in England too. So um, Northern soul is basically, you know, it's Mo it's English version of Motown is what it is. So uh, yeah, you know, at least the driving uh, Motown song. So cool stuff, though. But yep. next up, little change in style. 18 is Reflections of My Life by The Marmalade. Let's see. And this is a big ballad. Um, we've had a lot of big ballads. on. Well, he ain't heavy. He's my brother. Yeah, it's in that vein. Um, this one. And we have a couple big ones coming up later on the countdown. But um almost kind of proto soft rock too. Um, and they had the um, Holly's Beatles style harmonies going. And um, these guys were from Scotland. Um, they originally named um, Dean Ford and the Gaylords. Um, but um, wise... obviously somebody at the record label thought that might not be the best idea to be named the Gaylords. <laughs> yeah, so, that was probably wise choice. so they they changed it to the marmalade and um they had a number one hit in the uk about a year before this with a beatles cover since we've mentioned a lot of beatles covers here um they covered obladiba and they're shockingly the first scottish group to top the uk charts wow which i was kind of surprised by but um one of the things that sticks out the most to me about this song is the guitar solo, which is like very muted, which is kind of unusual for a guitar solo, but it's also half of it is backwards, like back masked. Yeah. And it's really unique. And I've, I've always really loved this song. Yeah. It's a cool so, song. I like this song too. Yep. And it ended up making it to number 10 and it was their only top 40 hit in the u.s so but it, it was a great song and um actually had another great song in um 68 or 67 um called here comes the rain again which is on the nuggets two box set which is really great and kind of has like almost a hendrix inspired guitar on it yeah. so this song would be very emblematic of kind of the uk pop that was you know popular in 69 and the in the first half of 1970 you know that it was a very brief period but a lot of kind of soaring ballads i guess the bgs were like that too but um at least the bgs of that period so it's kind of like that yeah yeah kind of similar yeah see but let's move on here to 17 um crosby stills nash and young with woodstock yep and this is uh this is a good song it has a good uh this definitely feels more like young really than a lot of some of their other songs because of the guitar in it 
Um, but it was a course written by Joni Mitchell and, um, you know, still played a lot on the radio and, you know, it's, it's good. It's a good song. I will say this though, and I don't want to get all okay boomer on everybody here because the, you know, I, I have a real distaste for, uh, you know, painting generations with a broad brush and all that. And whether it's the baby boomers or my own generation or the ones that have come after, I think that's really distasteful, but I will say this. This is an example of a song that of a generation kind of tooting their own horn a little bit. You know, it's like, uh, yeah, a little pretentious, you know, uh, kind of comparing Woodstock with the Garden of Eden and all that. It's, you know, okay. I know it was a big cultural icon, iconic moment and all that. But, you know, it hadn't even been a year since Woodstock had had happened. And, you know, I get how big of a deal it was, but. You know, maybe maybe allow a little bit of time for some historical reflection. I don't know, but a uh, little bit of football spiking a little bit, too. But um, but, you know, so but that be that as it may, it's a it's a good song. And uh, um, it was actually one of the very few songs that all four of those guys recorded together at the same time. Uh, they actually didn't uh, because of the various natures of their careers. They didn't record together that often. So. But this one was. This song was recorded with all four of Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young together. So, hmm. yes, very indeed. Yep. So that brings us to one of my favorites. Number 16 is Turn Back the Hands of Time by Tyrone Davis. Right. And this is a great um, mid tempo soul song. Um, it's kind of, it's, we mentioned Northern Soul and Carolina Beach music before. And, this is kind of a staple of both of those kind of like fake genres. But in fact, I actually heard this song on the beach music station when I was driving back from North Carolina back in December. Yep. But um, Tyro Davis was based out of Chicago and he was produced by uh, Willie Henderson, who also produced the shy lights and um, Jackie Wilson right around the same time period. And um, we kind of joked in a previous episode about how TV shows like Ed Sullivan would sometimes use like very little literal backdrops for right. groups on their performances. And I found a clip of Davis singing this song. I, I don't know which show it was from. There wasn't like an intro or anything, so I couldn't tell who the host was, but it's him in front of like an early green screen and it's showing like pictures of clocks and watches behind him. Yeah. Love that. <laughs> so, they love to go literal with the song titles on those TV sets back then. Right. But um, this made it all the way up to number three and it was actually up six spots this week and um, great soul song. Yeah, it is. Uh, this would battle with uh, give me just a little bit more. Uh, give me a little bit more time that I can't talk um, for one of my favorites on here. The thing I like about it is if you listen to it closely, Tyrone Davis doesn't sing that much on it. He sings the verses. But what I like about this song is he drops out of the chorus and allows the background singers to sing it, which is a trick yeah. you hear in a lot of soul songs and some rock songs. And it's, it almost it's the small faces did that a lot with Steve Marriott did that a lot in general with both the small faces and humble pie. Go back and listen to their songs. He would always drop himself out of the chorus. 
and it almost oh, gives, yeah. it gives yeah. heft to the verses because it's almost like uh, it's just a totally different sound. But this song is the thing I like about it too. It's sort of champagne soul to a little bit of a degree, a little bit, but it also yeah, has this drive to it that you know, like you said, it's mid tempo and. Um, but uh, this is one of my favorites. I love this song. It's really good. And it has a it has a cool like marimba on it too. Yep. Yep. So, but let's move on here to fifteen, which is Kenny Rogers and the first edition with something's burning. <clears throat> well, I'd love to delve into this, but this is a skip for me. So, okay, okay. That leads us to number fourteen, the rapper by the Jaggers. Let's see, and the these what Jaggers with a Z at the end. That's that's correct. Yeah, and these guys were a Pittsburgh-based band, and the name the Jaggers comes from um, the Pittsburgh term for thorns. So it has like nothing to do with like Mick, bunch basically of, bunch of Ginzers. Yep, and they were led by local hero Dottie Iris. Yep. Who, who actually wrote this song, but he was still going by his real name at the time, um, Dominic Arachi. And um, the song is about what we'd call a pickup artist today, but back then it was the rapper, I guess. And it kind of has a has a cool chorus with like the claps and um, the fuzz tone guitar. And I could have sworn that this song was sampled in the late 80s and early 90s in a rap single, but I looked it up and it actually wasn't. But it was sampled by Fatboy Slim and Girl Talk, who actually is from Pittsburgh. So he probably um, decided to sample it just to kind of rep the hometown, I guess. But it made it up all the way up to number two. Um, and it was heading down the charts at this time, but it still gets played a lot on oldie stations. As well it should. Yeah. Awesome. The fuzz guitar and fuzz bass in this song is almighty. I mean, it's like one of the best examples of that ever. I mean, yeah, it, yeah. it's not subtle. I mean, it is... I love it. It's so cool. Yeah. And yeah. the lyrics are hilarious because it definitely, it's of its time, definitely comes from the coffee tea or me type of sexism you know yeah which is actually one of the lines of the song right right they probably i'm sure they stole it from that book but probably very (laughs) admonish type of mores that they're uh employing here so good way to get yourself a sexual harassment suit if you actually try to play this song in real life like actually (laughs) actually do it but so but yeah the the fuzz bass in this song is just uh that's another thing that's great about music from this era the fuzz bass oh we'll yeah have more yeah. of that left over on this countdown too so yep let's see but let's move on to 13 which is the frigid pink with house of the rising sun and this is another skip for me i've saved up my skips so okay. that leads us to number 12 the bells by the originals and this is skip for me. Um, another soul ballad. Um, not too bad, but just needed to skip something. Fine. Okay. Um, number eleven. Uh, Bobby Sherman. E- easy come, easy go. <laughs> well, 
Yeah, I said earlier in the countdown, I don't have enough time for schlock because there's too much good stuff to talk about. So I'm going to set a record a, a with a bullet uh, historic record. Now I'm going to skip three songs in a row. I don't think I've ever done that. I, I I think we've done like three in a row together, but not three as a put it in the row. record book. Three individual skips in a row. I don't have time <laughs> okay. to fuck around with Bobby Sherman. So okay, okay. Let's get to the good shit, and it starts with well, I guess it starts with number ten, "Up the Ladder to the Roof" by the Supremes. See, and this was the first Supreme single released after Diana Ross left the group, and. It was the first credited to just the Supreme since 1967. And um, it was sung by Gene Terrell, who replaced Diana in the group. And um, there wasn't really that much of a transition between the two of them. Um, the last show that they played with Diana was in December of 69. And her last single was on the charts until February of 1970. And they actually introduced Terrell as a replacement at Diana's final concert. But um, this is a great song. And um, the post-Diana Supremes don't really get that much credit. But, I mean, they did put out a lot of stuff. Um, Stone Love is great, too, which yeah. Terrell also sang. But, yeah, this stands up with the best of them. And... Um, this was its peak at the chart. Um, did make it to number four on the soul charts, but um, great song. Yeah. Like one quite a bit. Stone Love is cool. Floyd Joy isn't too bad. I mean, that didn't last too long for the Supremes, but, you know, like a lot of soul groups, they were proved that they were a little bit more than their star, you know, so. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, before, so. Right. And actually, Mary Wilson was the only original member left at this point. Yep. Um, Florence Ballard left a couple of years before. So, but yeah. Um, but let's move on to number nine here, which is the Guess Who with American Woman, um, No Sugar Tonight. <laughs> it is really, truly one of the great uhs in rock and roll history. Which, uh, that is true. Yeah, it's off America. Well, it doesn't start it off. There's this big, long, dopey ass, um, silly kind of bluesy spoken word portion that comes before it. But, <laughs> but that sets up the uh. I, I think that whole purpose of Burton Cummings doing that was to set up his almighty uh to start that song. But yeah, um, yeah. very big hit for the guess who, for that matter. So was No Sugar Tonight. Um, you know. Yeah, kind of a slam, I guess. They were the guests who were from Canada and actually American Woman is a metaphor for uh, kind of the anti-war feeling at the time, I guess. But um, very famously, our dad is a huge fan of this song. So <laughs> I, I messaged him about this too. And he says he hates this song, but he likes Burton Cummings. So, you know, huh. that's fine. But um this song has become... It must have been a, our mom had a copy of this album. Right, too. yeah. We had it. I remember listening to it when, when I was... We, I, I put it on a couple times um, when when I was younger. So, when you know, in the, in the 80s. But um, I, I don't know. This song... The reason I don't care for it isn't the same reasons he doesn't. Uh, it's kind of overplayed, to be honest. And the yeah. psychedelic guitar in it does get 
a little tiresome after a while. I mean, it's pretty iconic. Um, you know, I, Randy Bachman would have played that, but, um, you know, it just, it's, it just drones on and on, you know, and if you hear it only once or twice a year, it's probably fine, but it's still very much a classic rock staple. So I've probably heard it enough. It's one of those songs you, it's not terrible, but if you hear it enough, it's like your memory, your memory banks just can't handle it anymore. I mean, like Miss You by the Rolling Stones. I never need to hear that again as long as I live. It's not that bad of a song, but, you know, it's like, okay, enough, you know. So there's another song coming up that fits that bill and on my side. So, okay. Um, but anyway, that leads us to another great soul song. Number eight is Love or Let Me Be Lonely by the Friends of Distinction. Let's see. And the Friends of Distinction were actually discovered by Jim Brown. Yes, I knew that. And um, kind of almost similar to The Fifth Dimension a little bit, but um, they're best known for their cover of Hugh Masekela's Grazing of the Grass, which came out a year before this. And um, this is one of those songs that I've heard like numerous times over the years, but I had didn't have the slightest clue who actually performed it. I wouldn't have guessed that it was the Friends of Distinction. And I also kind of assumed that this came out later than 1970 i would have guessed like 74 or 75 because it almost has like an early disco feel to it but um it has i mean it's kind of like lower tempo in the verses and then it kind of like builds up to like a higher tempo chorus which is which is pretty good, just kind of going to the yeah, like the, the soft dynamic. The bridges in this song are pretty damn good. They are, yep. But great song, and um, it was actually covered by Paul Davis, of all people, in the early 80s, and his version actually made the charts, too. Huh. I, I didn't I didn't bother listening to his version because I didn't think it would be that great. I but. I could see that because of the lower tempo parts of the song. I could see him seeing that and be like, "Well, this is pretty good." Can't see him doing the upper, the high tempo parts of the song though. That that probably wouldn't. Yeah, definitely not. <laughs> Friends of Distinction were cool. They had three very good songs that they're known for. You mentioned two of them, and then going around going round in circles, which is a which is a. Um, kind of a down-tempo type of song um, is also very, very cool. And um, Oh, yeah. So Jim yeah. Brown had good taste. So I got to give it up to him. Yeah, yep. And, well, actually, I mean, football players were kind of, like, involved in music. At That's right. Yeah, you had the Detroit Lions recording with Marvin Gaye uh, not too long after this. and Yep, and War started out as uh, Rosie Greer's backing band. <laughs> That's, yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. <laughs> so... Yeah. Didn't Deacon Jones record on something too from the Rams? Deacon yeah, I think he did put out like his own albums. He he might have been like involved with war also. Yeah. All the football teams. The Packers were involved with some polka band or <laughs> right. Let's see, but let's move on to number seven here, which is um Badfinger with Come and get it. Well, poor Badfinger. I, you know, as I've said, I think I've said this on the podcast before. I'm a huge, huge fan of the power pop genre, which is, if you don't know what that is, that's, you know, really music that's based on the kind of the mid 60s 
Beatles primarily, but also the who and and the kinks and, um, and the small faces bands like that. Um, it really didn't have a name though, until the turn of the eighties, uh, when people started calling it power pop. So the bands that produced power pop type music before that were considered basically ripoffs. And unfortunately, Badfinger got put in that category as Beatles ripoffs. Now there's a little bit of a reason for that. They recorded for Apple records. They recorded this song literally with Paul McCartney, uh, helping them. He wrote it. Um, so, I suppose they earned that tag a little bit more than others, but Badfinger had a pretty cool sound in and of themselves. And, and this song was the one that got them going. Um, as I mentioned, Paul McCartney wrote it. He actually recorded a demo um, during, I think the um, Abbey road sessions. It was never considered to be part of the album, um, but it was included on one of the anthology albums. Uh, Badfinger who were called the Ivies at the time were given the song by McCartney and two others um, he had a contract he had to fill for to give three songs to the Magic Christian soundtrack. So rather than record them himself, he let Badfinger record them, and uh, it became their breakthrough. Um, unfortunately, Badfinger never quite lived down to being Beatles clones. Um, they would they would go on to record with all of the solo Beatles uh, at some point during their solo careers. They, John Lennon less so. They supposedly played on the imagine album but um by the badfinger's own reckoning they didn't none of their stuff actually made it to the album but they were pretty prominent with george harrison ringo Starr, and paul mccartney uh, at various points of their career and it's a shame that they're kind of remembered that way because i'd put them in my triumvirate of original pop power pop kind of legends right there with the oh yeah with the raspberries and uh and big star and um they're very tragic group uh two of their members committed suicide, one of them in the mid seventies uh, when they were having record troubles and, and one of them in the early eighties when they were just, you know, down on their luck uh, very much a group that deserved better, but that's kind of the power pop kind of legend in a way. I mean, a lot of groups that were power pop groups didn't last long, weren't appreciated in their time. Badfinger probably was appreciated a little bit more in their time than most power pop groups were because they did have a lot of hits, but they're definitely, pioneers of that sound very uh hooky uh music but with prominent guitars in it and this song certainly is one of them so i've always liked bad finger and uh this isn't my favorite song by them but it is good and uh so very cool stuff so i know you like them as well yeah and actually there's kind of a local connection to them too and um they got hooked up with like a shady manager who was based in Milwaukee and they were essentially stranded in Hales Corners, Wisconsin for like six months. And while they were stranded, they actually performed this song on like monster theater. No, no shock theater. Shock theater. Shock okay. Theater. I used to watch shock theater. Yeah. Yeah. And it's <laughs> just like one of the most depressing clips it, it, ever. It is. It is horribly depressing. And I remember watching that when they did the behind the music on Bad Finger on VH1, you know, all those, you know, 20, it's probably been 20 years now. Um, but that blew me away when I saw shock theater on behind the music that cracked me. I mean, it, it is very sad, but it also cracked me up that that, you know, that that show showed up on there. So. Right. But, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, next up for you is a big one. Number six is Bridge Over Troubled Water by Simon and Garfunkel. 
let's see yeah this is another big ballad um it was inspired by gospel music the title actually came from a line in claude jeter's mary don't you weep and um simon kind of paul simon acknowledged that he stole it from him and um to pay him back he um had him as a background vocalist on one of his solo albums which is um based on some of paul simon's history is kind of like shocking that he actually did that because he has been accused of just like straight up oh really yeah like yeah putting up my <laughs> but, yeah but um um simon actually had to convince art garfunkel to sing the lead on the song which is kind of surprising because this did kind of end up becoming art garfunkel's signature song um Garfunkel didn't think the song was right for him and actually liked um, Simon's falsetto on the demo version. And um, for initially rejecting it, um, Simon was kind of offended by that. And they weren't really getting along at this time anyway. So um, once it did become a hit, Simon became jealous that he did give it away to Garfunkel. But... um, Garfunkel and their producer Roy Halley talked Simon into writing the final verse and the big ending to the song, um, which it kind of builds up to, like the sail on Silver Girl mm-hmm. yeah. verse, up to like the big like belting out of the the chorus and um, like the big drum sound at the end, which is actually. Hal Blaine um, beating on a snare drum with the chains from his snow tires, hmm. which was also used on the boxer from the same album. But huge hit. Um, it was number one for six weeks and it was heading down the charts, but it was still um, um, still in the top 10. Um, it's um won Grammys for Record of the Year and Song of the Year for this year. So yep. swept both major categories. It, it just but. it just works. You know, I mean, this song actually breaks one of my, this would be an exception to one of my rules because it is overwrought. I mean, the song is definitely the production of it. And like you mentioned, the, the crescendo at the end of the song, but it, it works. It, it's It's my favorite Simon and Garfunkel song. And normally I wouldn't like songs that are, of this style, but it, it, it definitely works. And it's definitely, whether he likes it or not, it's Art Garfunkel's big shining moment as well. So, Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. So, but yeah, yeah. Great song. But um, Let's move on to, and I'm jealous that you got this. One yeah, baby. This song. Um, Edison Lighthouse was Love Grows by Rosemary. Well, you should, I'm, you know, I don't blame you for being jealous because this is, uh, uh, I wouldn't call this bubblegum, but it's, it's definitely a pop song of its period. No question about it. And um, very up tempo and very happy and all that kind of almost sunshine pop. Uh, but, but it was written, it was, it's considered and it is a one hit wonder. Um, it was written by Tony McCauley and Barry Mason, who were basically a studio group. They weren't a real group. Um, but when the song became a hit, they had to assemble a group uh, for the BBC's Top of the Pops. And so they found a group called uh, Greenfield Hammer, 
and they deputized them as Edison Lighthouse, which wasn't even a real group. So they paired uh, Greenfield Hammer with Tony Burroughs, who is uh, a very famous singer of, of, of hits by faux groups in this period. At this point, he would have had, within a year of this song, he had My Baby Loves Lovin', United We Stand, um, and then later on in the 70s, Gimme Dat Ding and Beach Baby were all sung by Tony Burroughs, including this couple, A couple of those songs were actually on a chart this week, too. They were, um, and they were all under different group names. So there were a lot of faux, fake groups in the early 70s that were studio creations, and this song is one of them. And one of the legends is that Tony Burroughs went on that episode of Top of the Pops and sang lead for uh, United We Stand, This, and um, My Baby Loves Lovin'. That's not true, it turns out, but it's a cool legend anyway. Um, so Contrived or Not as a studio creation, this is a great song. And it does go to show that, you know, a pop arrangement doesn't necessarily require the kind of way we think about it with a song with group inspiration and all that. So, And it's got those cool turn of the 70s strings in it. You know, that kind of yeah. propels the song. So, um, so yeah, I mean, this is something uh, you could imagine yourself watching the Archies to this or watching, uh, you know, um, the uh, shit, the uh, um, banana splits. <laughs> okay. I could see this yeah. being performed like badly on the banana splits. So very much yeah. of that vein uh kind of happy pop that you know songs like that popped up once in a while i can think of like uh um tighter and tighter later on in 1970 which was by um you know in that vein so cool stuff what do you like about it um let's see well i mean you mentioned the strings on it but um there's also like the guitar riff on it, it's almost reminiscent of t-rex from the same period Kind of like the very early T-Rex sound. Yeah. Like you can almost imagine Mark Bolin singing it. And there's also like the choir that pops up at the end of it too. But I mean, it's just a great pop song. Just a great, great pop type kind of bubblegum song. And um, it was actually covered by the replacements quite a bit in their live show. Well, you know, I was listening yesterday. I was just out running an errand. And I was listening to the um, to um, Little Stevens Underground Garage uh, station on satellite radio, and he was paying tribute to the Ramones, and he was basically trying to list all the influences that the Ramones had, which are many, even though their music was very simple. And you know, one of the big influences on the Ramones was music like this, bubblegum music. I mean, oh yeah, yeah. you know, they they like to simplify their music down to its to its core, and that's really what bubblegum music is i've never necessarily considered this i guess it's bubblegum music i mean i consider more stuff like yeah. ohio express which is really just a somebody singing over a riff i mean that's all that is um but it's pretty cool you know i mean it's simple the lyrics are silly but um but it's very catchy as well you know that's why they call it bubblegum so um songs like that are you know it's easy to make fun of them and this song is would be easy to make fun of too but uh, you know, when you boil it down to its elements, uh, really, what that's what all songs are, including the next song, really, by a much more respected artist. Um, you know, I'm not saying this is bubblegum, but it's very simple. 
um, in its execution, but also pretty great. And that would be number four, Instant Karma by John Lennon. Let's see. And this song came together pretty quickly. It was conceived, written, recorded, and released in a 10-day period. Would you say it was instant? Yes. Yes, actually. <laughs> but it's, um, the topic of instant karma came up in a conversation with the wife of Yoko's ex. And um, the concept of instant karma is that karma happens immediately instead of gradually over time. And Lennon thought that it was funny. Um, he did kind of take the concept serious, seriously, but um, he also imagined it as like a monster lurking in the shadows, like right. jumping out at you. And he was struck funny about that and like started writing the song almost immediately. And he called up Phil Spector, who was working on Let It Be at the time, and um, George Harrison, Billy Preston, um, Klaus Vorman, who was one of their friends from back in the Hamburg days and um, drew the cover for Revolver. And um, they all just got to the studio um, like almost immediately just started banging out this track and kind of has the Phil Spector wall of sound um, sound to it. Um, but one of, I mean, I'd probably rate it as one of his better solo songs. It's really catchy. Yeah. Um, let's see. Um, it was actually, I was surprised to find out about this, but this was actually the best-selling solo Lennon song in his lifetime. That that doesn't surprise me because, you know, I think pe- most people would say it was Imagine. But yeah, I, I assume that it would have been Imagine. But I think that create that came into more prominence after he uh, it was a big hit. But I mean, I think it became bigger in the memory after he died. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But um, how I was first introduced to this was that it was in a Nike ad in the late 80s. And that was the first time I remember hearing it around the same time they were also using revolution in their ads right too. so i mean i compared it it's not bubblegum but it is a simple concept of a song and that's kind of what i was driving at in the kind of tortured intro i did to this i mean it's there's nothing very complicated about this song you know it's like you mentioned about the lyrics it's pretty simple and but it works and it's uh showed that john you know for all of the respect he got for kind of being the guy who took chances and stuff like that with his solo career he was probably most successful when he you know just tried to put out a good you know pop song really and and oh yeah that's that's what this is so yeah yeah see but let's move on here to number three which (laughs) is norman greenbaum with um spirit in the sky hey matt it's the 60s well 70s it was recorded. <laughs> How about we put this song in every movie that comes in the future that vaguely references the youth of the baby boom generation? <laughs> and hey, man, let's also put it in every commercial, Nona Man. And hey, man, if a movie character dies and goes to heaven, let's play this song too. And then, hey, if there's astronauts flying around in space, hey, man, we can play this, punch it up, you know? Yeah. Ugh. I mean, yeah. I. This song isn't that bad, but I've grown to really kind of dislike this song because of overuse. I talked about that a little bit with um, 
um, earlier in the in the in the pod, and it's just it, I I can't listen to this song anymore. It's just been used too many times. It's become a trope. I mean, oh, you know, yeah, definitely. If a, if a movie took place that involved hippies, it's going to have this song in it. If a movie takes place um, in 1970, chances are they're going to play this song over like either the credits or uh, astronaut taking off on an Apollo mission or something like that. I mean, it's, it's become a cliche and that's too bad because if it were just left alone, you know, it's not a bad song and it has the cool fuzzed out guitar in it, which is cool. Um, but I don't know. It's, it's gone over the, it's the, the shark jumped it along or it jumped the shark. The shark jumped it a long time ago, (laughs) but Norman Greenbaum himself, which this was his only hit, you know, he kind of embraces it, I guess. I, I found a quote and it says, quote, it sounds as fresh today. This He would have said this a couple years ago as when it was recorded. I don't know about that. Um, <laughs> I've gotten letters from funeral directors telling me that it's their second most requested song. Well, you know, that I, I guess that's a compliment. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I, mean, yeah. I hope nobody plays this when I pass. You know, that'll, I'll be like in my grave. I'll be like, don't fucking play that song. It's cliched. You know, just like American woman is. So, um, yeah, I it, it, which is too bad because it actually isn't that bad of a song. But would right. you agree? Well, the, yeah. Well, the one story that I heard about this song is apparently like his dad was a rabbi. Right. Yes, he was Jewish. He kind of like freaked out about the friend of Jesus line in it. Yeah. So well, and that's the other thing that's been misappropriated as is like a religious song too. It's right. Like it, yeah. it, it, I, it's kind of put out there as a early version of like God or like Christian rock, and I, I guess I mean I don't think that was the intention of the song, but you know, I can understand how somebody would extrapolate that, I suppose. But but yeah. somewhere somebody's hearing this in Forrest Gump or Apollo thirteen or whatever. Or selling, um, you know, God knows what. So I wonder how many. I didn't look. I, 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 it said it was oft used in movies. I didn't actually look to see how many. I guess I could have IMDb'd it and figured out how many movies it's been. And it has to be like 20 or 30 at least. Probably more than that, oh, actually. Man. It's just like, come on, people. Get a better. Get, find somebody to pick more unique songs. You know, stop running them into the ground. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, uh, let's move on to number two. Oh boy, ABC by the Jackson Five. Yes, and this was the second single for the Jackson Five, and it would eventually become their second number one. Um, their first four singles went to number one, and they're still the only group ever to do that. And it was written by the corporation, which was kind of a songwriting production team put together by Motown just to work with Jackson five. And the members of the corporation were Barry Gordy himself, um, Freddie Perrin, Alfonso Mazel, and Deke Richards. And they worked together on all the early Jackson five singles. And um, sounds similar to I want you back, which came before this and the love you save which came immediately after this and it kind of has the cool piano sound to it the cool fuzz guitar and like all the other songs um kind of has 
um, Jermaine Jackson kind of acting as Michael's foil on the song. And it's kind of a Michael's performance on this and all their early singles are just amazing because he was only 11 years old at the time. And I mean, just kind of amazing that this is coming from 11 year old, but um, their sound is pretty timeless and it's been copied numerous times over the years. Um, The Osmonds almost immediately after this, um, the DeFranco family, um, the Silvers who were actually produced by Freddie Perrin um, Candy Girl by New Edition and um, Umbop by Hanson, but um, the DeFranco um, family. I, I did mention the DeFranco family. Yep. I thought they deserved <laughs> to be mentioned again. Well, they they should. They're the they're the Canadian version of the Jackson. Five. Exactly. <laughs> but it's it's also been sampled tons of times. Um, probably most notably by Naughty by Nature for OPP. But um, great song. I mean, all the early Jackson Five stuff's great and kind of an enduring classic. And I'm pretty sure we saw Michael Jackson perform. We did. Live. He did like a medley of his Jackson Five stuff in. And during the bad tour, right? Yeah. So, I mean, but the the truth is, is that the Jackson. First of all, this is their best song, without a doubt. I mean, I there's it is pretty much a perfect pop song. I mean, perfect pop soul song, perfect either. I mean, it is perfect. And what they did was, you know, they really the the kind of Afro soul that was already bubbling up. You know, a lot of songs on here would be considered to be Afro soul. Well, what they did is they took the elements that were already there and basically put jet fuel in it because they they basically yep. define the sound of soul, at least pop soul. And, you know, for the first, you know, right through 73 or 74. I mean, it was it just it. But they were so huge. And this song was so great. Uh, you got to give it up to the corporation. I mean, they did their job on this one. Uh Oh yeah, definitely. You know, it's it. They were. I know they were a phenomenon, and they deserve to be. I mean, you know, the the I don't turn this song off when it comes on, and I've heard it. A mil- this song is the opposite of, you know, the song is so great. I don't mind hearing this song a million times, and it's that's hard to do. You know, I mean, e- even some great songs I get tired of hearing after a while. Like I don't need to hear. You know, I I already talked about that, but this is one where it's just I could hear it a, a million more times. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. And I do prefer this one. Out of their big first three, I would probably rank them ABC, The Love You Save, and then I Want You Back. But they're all but they're all really good. I mean, it's not like they're, any of them are bad. So, Right, yeah, I'd probably rate them the same. Yeah, a little bit more of a drive to the ABC and The Love You Save than I Want You Back. That's a little slower tempo, but, right. but still, they basically created early 70s uh top 40 soul without a doubt yep yep see but we're at number one here we are yep um the beatles with let it be well it's interesting because by now the public knew what the beatles knew several months earlier and that's that they were done uh the group was it went public this chart was would have been eight days uh I think Paul McCartney announced, I think it was April 10th 
1970 that he was no longer going to be recording with the Beatles. In reality, they had broken up long before that. John Lennon had walked away from the group in uh, the early fall of 69. So, but that wasn't public knowledge. So the public had just found out the Beatles had broken up. So I imagine that was jarring and all of that. Let It Be was already, um, you know, on the charts when that would have been announced, but I'm sure that didn't hurt its cause in terms of getting to number one. It probably would have gone number one anyway, but uh, this was its fifth week on the chart. So you figure this really would have been the first time the impact of their breakup would have been felt on the chart. So I'm sure that that uh, didn't hurt their cause. Um, But forget all that. We know that the Beatles broke up and we knew it happened in, at least as far as the public was concerned in 1970, but I don't care about any of that. What I do care about with this song in particular is which version do you like better? I, I love the debate and this song, for some reason, this song is my favorite one to, to debate because if you don't know, there's two very prominent versions of this song that were released. Um, this one, the single was actually released um, before the let it be album. And it has a different mix to it than the one on the album. It's uh, George Martin produced and the main difference, though, is that the guitar solo is different. The guitar solo in the single version and the one you probably hear more on the radio these days has George Harrison playing his guitar through a Leslie speaker, which is an organ uh, speaker, and it's muted. It's it's more, you know, it's probably more in the tempo of the song. When they put the Let It Be album out shortly after this, which was produced by Phil Spector, infamously produced, depending on how you want to look at it, it has a different guitar solo to it. There's other differences, too. There's a little bit more of a reverb to the drums and all that. But the big one is the guitar solo. And in that one, one of the last acts any of the Beatles did for a Beatles song was George Harrison went in and re-recorded his solo. And it's much harder than the one that's on the single version. So if you listen to the Let It Be album, you're not going to hear the version that was played as a single. And my debate has always been which one is better. And it really does split a lot of people in terms of which one they like better. My argument for the harder version has always been, I feel, first of all, I like it because I like, I just like the contrast of the harder guitar to the slower song. But I think it makes the song more majestic by having that, you know, that harder, it, it makes the quieter moments have more heft to them because of the louder moment that's in the middle of the song. That's what my rationale is. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. And I do prefer that version. Also. I actually went on the, the Steve Hoffman music forums and that's one of the ones I put out there as a thread because I knew that you have a bunch of people like us who are just, you know, down to the, you know, the, the minutia of, of the music and, the harder version won out, but it was a good battle. It wasn't like it was a blowout. It was within, uh, you know, 50 to 60% one way or the other. So um, it's a beautiful song. It's one of my favorites by the Beatles. And it's probably a little bit personal for both of us because it is about McCartney's mom who died of cancer um, around the same age I would have been when our mom passed away. Uh, that's not evident in the lyrics but you know the whole mother mary thing is referring to his mom and uh Uh you know and and it's just you know it's a kind of like bridge over troubled water it's a very kind of majestic song with a big sweep to it um but um and it's got the great organ in it too which i like and uh uh one of my favorite beatles songs at various i've never really had a favorite beatles song that i've ever stuck with i kind of 
jump around between some ones I do like. This has been in that mix without a doubt. So, and I really do, I really do love that harder guitar. I just think that's, it reminds me a little bit of presence of the Lord by blind faith, where it's a very slow, that tempo of that song is very similar to this one, but then Eric Clapton's guitar solo in the middle of it, you know, takes it up a notch. And, um, and obviously he then plays guitar over the rest of the slower portion of the song. Uh, Let it be is a lot like that. And uh, that's one of the reasons why I like it so much. So, um, but you know, for a long time, I wondered what those two solos would sound like put together. And it's one of those, be careful what you wish for type things. Uh, Somebody did Uh put them together on YouTube and it just sounds busy. It doesn't sound right. And, and there's been other mixes of the let it be album, the let it be naked album, of course, that have, delved into other solos Harrison recorded three solos for it or maybe four depending on which Beatles historian you want to trust uh, definitely three so um, so when they started remixing this stuff they had a lot to choose from so um, I think the Let It Be album I, I a lot of Beatles fans really detest the Phil Spector production on it I don't know I kind of like the Phil Spector production on it. I don't know how you feel uh, yeah I don't mind it at yeah, all I actually I, I have that and the Let It Be Naked version, and I, I do prefer the um, Phil Spector version. Yeah, I think Paul McCartney, who I normally would align with in these intra Beatles arguments, really, he didn't. I think there's a little bit of an element of Lennon McCartney's uh, art, you know, acrimony at the time because Spector was a Lennon guy. Uh, so I think that fuels a little bit of it, but most of the songs that I've heard different versions of between the two. I've the Spectre versions are, are fine, you know, or, or better. So anyway, so let it be by the Beatles. That was a big one. We had a lot of big ones on this. uh, Yeah. Yeah, we did. So we're not going to have as many big ones on the next countdown, Matt. So I get to pick next and we're going to go to a decade. We haven't done yet. Are you scared? Uh, A little bit. You should be because we're (laughs) going to do the alternative chart from april 29th 2000 and which would have been right april 29th 2000 2000, matt we're in the well maybe in the 21st century depending on how you wow wow it's gonna probably suck and it would have been right at the end of i would have been 29 well i would guess i would have been 28 basically right at the end of when i when you basically stop paying any attention to trying to be current or at least i did yeah and you were probably a little bit further behind that curve than i was but there's gonna be let's see so i i'm i'm guessing that there would be a lot of new metal on this since it's an alternative um chart. i think i avoided a lot of new there might be some but you know, it's not heavy <laughs> with that it's uh it's it's interesting i wanted to delve into a different era so we're gonna okay. go uh, into right. the 21st century where they have flying cars and shit yeah, and yeah. you know we're going to be wearing jetpacks in the 21st century. Yeah, it's hard to believe that that was 20 years ago. Now. Yeah, well, we're old. Was, so, yeah, you know, you boil it down, <laughs> we're just old. So, yeah, yeah. Anyway, thanks for listening this week, Matt. Farewell until this yep. next week uh, when we delve into 2000. Have a good week. Okay. Yep. Are you coming in, or you're going to piss about all day? You're bloody finished, you know that, Jack. I'm bloody finished, you.